Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well, then you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is April 20th, 2021, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everyone. As we do every week, I have on my podcast, Christian Ford. Christian? Neil, I have my first vaccination shot. I have Pfizer running through my veins. Well, you know, you're you're at least not uh, another millennial who's been relegated to Johnson & Johnson, you know, so. I was upgraded. Yeah, you were upgraded. So consider yourself privileged. Um, (laughs) But you know that's that's great. Uh, when's your next shot? Three, two weeks, three. Uh, weeks? It's got to be in yeah, three weeks. Yeah. Do you get any reaction? Uh just a sore arm, but nothing too bad. Yeah. Well, wait, wait till tonight when you sweat it out. Um. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> as always, uh, if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about on this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, which I put together here with my team at Hedgeye Risk Management. You can Google it, find out about it. Uh, You'll be able to, uh, and if you subscribe, you'll be able to get our newswire, uh, watch my show on COVID-19, get special interviews with guests, and occasionally uh, enjoy our black books, which we come out, we're actually coming out with a few soon on um, demography in the United States, uh, you know, through 2020. Uh, we're going to do another one on the long-term fiscal outlook. We're going to do yet another one uh, globally. So we, we've got a lot of content coming up. Let's get into today's podcast. As always, uh, we have a lot to talk about the continuing bull market or not, <laughs> looking at today's uh, stock market results. A couple of uh, RIPs, the death of uh, John Williamson, uh, the inventor of the term Washington Consensus. So that kind of dates us all, doesn't it? And Vice President uh, Fritz or Walter Mondale. Uh, We have lots of international news, which we're going to get to, uh, stuff happening in uh, everything from uh, Burma, or should I say Myanmar. We've got Russia news. We've got... uh, Israeli news. Uh, We're about to pull out of Afghanistan. We've got a continuing kind of quasi or soft showdown over Taiwan. Uh, All that coming up. And two big news wires, uh, which I'm going to be talking about. One is a surge at the border. Will this be Biden's first challenge as president? And a longer term big think piece, which is education now being ahead of race in determining life expectancy. So it's kind of a a deeper piece covering this long-term, very fascinating secular trend about the huge correlation between educational attainment and life expectancy. It's always been there. It's just gotten a lot stronger. And now it's actually completely overwhelming uh, race as we see it sorting out between it doesn't matter which race you are, if you have a college degree or if you're high school only, 
and we're going to get into um, you know Angus Deaton's uh, work on that. It's fascinating. It is certainly thought provoking. If there is a big theme this week, you know, we occasionally have themes. Uh, Christian, you know, we have we have themes, you know, to our to our yeah. podcast. Last week it was, uh, well, I guess, two weeks ago it was China, and I think today right. it would be Biden's first big challenge. Um, we're going to look at Russia and China, which look together to be a big challenge. They're ready to test the new president's resolve abroad, particularly after his announcement to leave Afghanistan. That'll be an interesting test. And the immigration flood, uh, which is now happening, which will test his ability to stand up probably to his progressive wing. And this will be very interesting to see. And we'll, we'll be talking about all that today. Uh, as always, let's start out with our markets and indicators. And that means it's over to you. All right, Neil. Well, our last podcast was 10 market days ago. And since then, the S&P 500 is up 2.4%, and the global Dow is up 1.7%. And yesterday, the VIX closed at 17.29, you know, closer to the pre-pandemic average. Yeah, well, it still has a ways to go to get way down into that, uh, you know, absolutely nothing bad's going to happen territory uh, that we were in, you know, sometime uh, late in uh, 2019. I don't know. Let's go on to indicators. All right. Uh, We'll start with the U.S., where we have the Michigan Consumer Sentiment preliminary for April. And that rose slightly to 86.5. That's its highest reading since March 2020. It was, I will say, it was slightly below expectations. Uh, We also got retail sales month over month for March. And the expectations for that were a 4.5% growth, but it came in at 9.8%. You know, they're saying this is, you know, March, mid-March or so, people got their stimulus checks and nicer weather. Uh, And then we also have housing starts month over month for March. That came in at 19.4%, way above expectations. This was the biggest increase in housing starts, Neil, was in the Midwest. It increased 122.8%. Wow. Well, it's... uh... It's uh, cheap to live there. You know, you often wondered why more young people weren't moving to a place where it's less expensive to live. And now perhaps some of them, um, who knows, they can, for some reason, they can get work there. And maybe they can, some of them can move uh, or work remotely there. Uh, We will actually be covering that in about uh, two or three weeks when we come out with our Black Book. We're going to be doing a long piece on mobility uh, what did or right. did not change in 2020. So that's going to be a really interesting part of it, which states are gaining, which are losing. Uh, we know the big losers, right? Those are the big uh, super cities. But, you know, a lot of the rest of the story is the states that were gaining continue to gain, <laughs> maybe a little faster. And uh, a lot of the states losing are continuing to lose. So we're, we're going to see right. whether or not that, that housing statistic actually does, proves to be a reliable indicator of long-term direction of, uh, a long-term direction of moving. Great. Uh, and what else do you have? Do you have uh, other stuff abroad? Yes, I have something from the Eurozone. This is the ZEW Economic Sentiment Indicator. Now, this is a poll, and they survey... Uh, financial and economic analysts to see how they think the Eurozone's economy will do in the future. And the expectations were that it was going to rise to 77. 
it fell for April to 66.3 nil. You know, they're saying they're worried about lockdowns, they're worried about rising cases of COVID, and just the general slowness of vaccine rollout. Right, right. Okay, well, speaking of great news, do you want to move on to China? Yes, we'll move to China, where we got our first news of GDP growth rate for Q1. Now, if you look year over year, it was an 18.3% growth rate, which is very high. But you remember a year ago, that's when China was really in the thick of COVID-19. But if you look at quarter over quarter growth rate, it was only 0.6%. And that was below expectations of a 1.5% rise. Yeah, that's that's actually significant. Uh, we've said often on this uh, podcast, I think uh, Hedgeye Macro would agree that China is beginning actually to fade negatively uh, versus expectations right. and on a rate of change basis. They're certainly trying to, you know, monetary policy being constrictive, you know, raising reserve uh, ratios and so on in the bank. Um, so, you know, my take on this, particularly in light of the last two days, I mean, today it looks like the market's really going down. I don't know, close to 1%. Uh, it's Tuesday today. Um it, it my take on all this is that all the indicators have been positive, uh, particularly in the in the U.S., but maybe not as positive as expectations. Uh, that's that's kind of how I see it. I mean, you look at COVID nineteen, uh, new cases have been stubbornly rising over the last month. Uh, who would have thought that? Right as we get higher and higher, look, the vaccine rollout has been great. Uh, new deaths have flattened out over the past two weeks in the 700s. They really are, are, you know, they're not going down. I you remember all those IMHE, Washington uh, University. You remember all those all those projections right. just showing the deaths going down to zero. Well, that that's not happening. Uh, Google Mobility is still minus 30 percent relative to January of 2020. Retail is minus 11%. It's particularly uh, slow in the Northeast, partly, again, just due to higher, you know, continuing, you know, COVID cases and, and due to the spread of variants and all the other things we've, we've been looking at. Uh, in other words, we're just getting back to kind of where we were last summer. This is not yet kind of post-COVID. Uh, initial claims are lower, uh, but it's uh, still monthly initial claims uh, on unemployment benefits are still nearly as large as they were at the peak of the Great Recession. So, you know, I'm I'm looking at all this and I'm saying, you know, particularly you look at the, the vaccine rollout, it's looking great. But I was astonished to learn, and I looked over the figures by age bracket, that uh, age 65 plus, we're only at 80%, and it seems to be flattening out. Uh, There are a lot of people still in nursing homes, a lot of old people who still haven't gotten vaccinated. Uh, And it looks like there may be a lot of younger people, particularly in sort of southern, more rural states that either haven't got vaccinated or have no intention, (laughs) as we have often said, of ever getting vaccinated. Um, So, you know, are we going to achieve um, a herd immunity? Are we going to get slowly there? Is uh, are we going to give the are we going to give the possibility of variants plenty of time to experiment and innovate. I think it's fair to say that a lot of people thought that this would be quicker. And I think the market is beginning to register that um, those qualms, right? Uh, 
the bond market again is moving inversely to equities in terms of price. And uh, as though we're back in the stagnation danger zone, right, where we've been, you know, most of the last 10 years after the GFC. The 10-year yield is down. Uh, Real interest rates are down, but inflation expectations are still high. They're still up there, you know, around 2.3-2.4% on the 10-year. Why are real interest rates going down, right? Uh, Well, I think it's that, that, again, the recovery isn't quite as fast as people thought. European recovery is still slow. Uh, You can see it with a big recent drop in in, uh, European equities over the last couple of days. Borrowing in Europe is still very low. Funds are not going into European businesses. China is also weak, have we just seen, not not as strong as people may have thought. And so where are these funds going? Well, where do funds always go in default? They go into U.S. Treasuries, right? So they keep that up, right? Higher real rates depend upon faster European recovery, faster China. And if this happens, it will also tend to ease inflation expectations. And it will allow some of the inflationary impact of stimulus to go abroad, right? To go off into the purchasing of, of, uh, of, of foreign exports. And that was the theory anyway. But it's not just the United States that has to expand. It has to be the rest of, uh, the, rest of the world as well. Let me go ahead and talk about these uh, two passings, uh, these two RIPs that I mentioned up front. One is John Williamson, who um, may not be obviously a household name, uh, but a, a a silent generation economist born in 1937. I believe he was um, was British. And back in 1989, when he was working at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, he coined uh, in a famous memo he wrote, and this was, you, you have to remember 1989, what was going on in the world, right? Uh, this was just after the era of Reagan and Thatcher. And it was after Latin Americans lost decade, right? La decada perdita, right? The lost decade of the 1980s. And it was a list of what the emerging market economies needed to do in order to succeed, right? Given this new dynamism by, um, by the American economy. And it was the familiar list, right? Fiscal rectitude, low public debt, Tax reform, low marginal rates, a floating currency, trade liberalization, open capital markets, privatization of state companies, deregulation. I mean, this just sounds like Reagan coming back, right? And needless to say, Washington consensus became a huge term during the 1990s and NOOs. And it was a later a term of opprobrium uh, in the minds of many foreigners, certainly in Latin America basically constituting a directive to all struggling economies that they had better adopt the rules of free enterprise neoliberalism or just die, right? I mean, that's your choice. Well, it's interesting now. No one really any longer believes in much of it, (laughs) the Washington consensus, Uh, even in America, especially the part of keeping your debt low. You know, what happened to that? Uh, and the globalization part, right? Uh, what about uh, trade liberalization and open your entire economy to, to free trade? I don't think any part of the world's really hot on that anymore. Um, even the high-income economies, not to say anything about the, about the emerging markets. But it's interesting. I think that was the passing of an era. It was certainly the era in which 
the silent generation was still, you know, strong in public life. And, and they were the primary neoliberal economists who, you know, took us into this whole era, you know, with the, with the boomers obviously just behind them. And speaking of the silent generation, we now want to move on to Walter Mondale, born in 1928. He has just died at 93. Now, he had a very typical kind of silent generation lifestyle, right? He he uh, certainly remembered the, the New Deal as a kid. He remembered World War II as a child. Uh, he served coming of age in the Korean War. Uh, he married in 1955 uh, while he was still in law school at age 27. That was actually late in those days, right? <laughs> he got married late at age 27. He was liberal attorney general in Minnesota, and he was appointed to the U.S. Senate in 1964, still relatively young after LBJ chose Hubert Humphrey, who was senator in Minnesota at that time, to be his vice president. And so he filled the hole, served in the Senate, fought for all the great kind of great society causes, like so many of the silent generation who remembered you know, grew up in the shadows of, of the New Deal, FDR and the New Deal, right? This was the second wave, was the great society to, to do everything that the New Deal had left unfinished. And he pushed for consumer protection and fair housing and tax reform. He was on the church committee of the mid-1970s, which did so much to, you know, pull in the CIA. Uh, you know, they were kind of uh, uh, kind of cowboy mavericks going around the world, Um who knows, maybe they did too much to pull in the CIA, but he was certainly successful at that. And then in 1976, um, he he was chosen by Jimmy Carter to be his vice president, and together they uh, beat uh, Gerald Ford and uh, Bob Dole, you know, that pair. And he was then the vice president. I mean, that was his, his claim to fame. But I should say his real claim to fame, I think it was why many people remember him, was in 1984 when he won the nomination to be uh, the Democratic candidate running against Reagan, Reagan's second term. And there were a couple of famous lines in, in that whole race. One line was during the primary against Gary Hart. You remember, it was this very uh, neoliberal and very sort of culturally liberal guy he was he was really hip. He was really he he won the hearts of a lot of young boomers at the time. Wow, you know this guy was really cool. And Mondale was kind of a frumpy, kind of more traditional New Deal type. And his line was when it came to Gary Hart, "Where's the beef? <laughs> Where's the beef?" <laughs> and that was a great line, and it stuck, right? I mean, here was the guy. Here was the meat and potatoes guy, right? He represented kind of the sort of the the dowdy middle of, of where the where the new dealers were. He won the primary. He ran with uh, Geraldine Ferrara, who was the first woman uh, to head any kind of presidential ticket or a vice presidential ticket. She was the vice presidential nominee. He ran on nuclear freeze, uh, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, higher taxes and deficit reduction. Okay, so uh, it's kind of taking down memory lane, right? To think back, nuclear freeze, equal rights amendment. And he went down to a epical defeat at the hands of Ronald Reagan. 
Uh, Reagan beat him by 18% margin in the popular vote. And he got the worst ever uh, number of electoral votes ever for a Democrat running. I don't know if ever for, no, it's not for, obviously the first couple of presidents had, you know, all the electoral votes in their favor. But certainly since we've had party politics, it is the worst electoral defeat ever. Reagan won 525 electoral votes. Mondale won 13. (laughs) 13. He won D.C., and he won the state of Minnesota. And even Minnesota, he won by 3,000 votes. He just barely won Minnesota. It's his own state. <laughs> uh, he was actually, even even McGovern in 1972, got more votes running in a second term against uh, Richard Nixon. McGovern got 17 electoral votes because McGovern got Massachusetts as well as D.C. Uh, anyway, an epical loss. But Mondale, Fritz Mondale was a... A great guy, wonderful sense of humor, totally self-deprecating. He says, yeah, that was that's the biggest shellacking of all time. I think one thing, at looking at this demographically, is the age gap. Uh, Mondale was 56, and Reagan, running for a second term at that time, was 73. And at that time, he was the oldest ever president who, was, who had ever run for office, right, in any term. And in his first debate... Mondale looked pretty good, looked pretty spry, looked pretty young, you know, and everyone began to say, hmm, I wonder if Reagan's just too old, you know, maybe maybe it is time for a change, right? So very famously, and this is the other great quote from that run, was uh, in, the, <laughs> in, the, in the next debate, Reagan came up, he was aware, you know, what people were talking about. He was aware that people were, you know, mumbling or murmuring a little bit about his age. And he came out with this wonderful quote that everyone who who was back there will always remember. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. That's <laughs> uh, a great quote, and everyone, you know, everyone, everyone loved it. Uh, and even even Mondale admitted Reagan was just so much better at handling the media and, and using sort of national imagery than I was. Um, but I I raised the age issue because it was salient at the time. It was an issue back then, though Reagan was seventy three. Donald Trump was running for a second term at age 74. And no one really raised the age issue. They raised, you know, a lot of other issues, needless to say, partly because he was running against Joe Biden at age 78. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And Biden, if he ever runs for a second term, will be running at age 82. Right. It is, by the way, and this is to a point, really, uh, you see these people born in the 1930s, and this will last probably up through most of the 1940s birth cohorts, longer and longer lifespans, right? Mondale was the fifth oldest living vice president ever, after Ford and Bush, both GI generation, you know, Gerald Ford and and, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, both born, you know, relatively recently in the 1910s and 1920s. The second longest vice president ever was someone I think almost no American knows anymore. Um, his name was Levy Morton. 
He was vice president for Benjamin Harrison in the early 1890s. Uh, I would say most Americans don't even know who Benjamin Harrison is. Probably the most, you know, the 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 biggest non-entity as a, as a president ever. Uh, probably the the uh, the, the most uh, unprepossessing personality of any president ever, and certainly no one remembers his vice president. The longest lived vice president ever was actually born in the 18, late 1860s. And he was John Nance Gardner, Cactus Jack from Texas. And he was twice vice president to FDR. Uh, FDR, he finally parted with FDR after the court packing scheme in 1937. Uh, and he just became too conservative uh, for FDR. Uh, as as many Southerners were beginning to pull back a little bit from FDR at that point, so FDR uh, dumped him, and 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 Gardner actually tried to run against FDR for for a third term. Uh, so FDR uh, dumped him, and 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 ran Henry Wallace, who was you know much more to the left, much more progressive. But uh, John Nance Gardner is his most famous claim to fame is what he said about the office of the vice president. He said it isn't worth a warm bucket of piss. So, you know, I'm just telling you that that's how he summed it up. Uh, he did not really want to be there anymore. And I will say this to, to Fritz Mondale. He really did revive the office of the vice president. Jimmy Carter invited him to sort of be a co-worker. And I would say ever since Walter Mondale, I think vice presidents have generally tended to assume uh, a more vital role as instead of just the guy sort of hangs on in case the president dies. It has often been said that Jimmy Carter was particularly uh, scandalized uh, in the way that he remembers as a kid when Harry Truman took over the presidency, you know, shortly after FDR, you know, won his, his, his fourth term and then died. And Harry Truman took over the presidency and had no idea what the atomic bomb was. <laughs> I mean, th this is dangerous, right? So in other words, I, uh, Harry Truman hardly ever even met with FDR. I mean, he was just a name to, to, Harry Truman was a dedicated supporter of the New Deal, dedicated supporter of FDR, but I think FDR just thought he was, you know, some, some Pendergast hack from St. Louis, uh, just didn't give him the time of day. Uh, but, but anyway, I think those days are over. In terms of presidents, we have Jimmy Carter now, still alive, born in 1924, has lived uh, now to age 96. He's the oldest ex-president ever. Uh, the next oldest was Bush Sr., who lived to 94. Gerald Ford and, and Ronald Reagan both lived to 93. And before that, to get the fifth longest president, well, Christian, for that, you have to go all the way back to John Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Born in 1735. Well, 1735. Add 90 years, you get 1826. So that's the famous death that occurred on the same day as Thomas Jefferson, exactly on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, right? That was, you know, that incredible thing. Anyway, John Adams, yes, uh, tough New England family. So the extraordinary longevity of the silent will probably follow, be followed by early wave boomers, but we'll see about what follows after that. Because as you know, Christian, we've written about that often, right? 
it looks as though there are signs that longevity seems to be declining, the early signs that it may be declining by cohort, uh, disturbing signs because they go against all of our kind of secular expectations that there seem to be troubling signs about people born, you know, after the mid-1950s, particularly going into, you know, early and late wave Gen Xers born in the 1960s and 70s. So we'll be looking at that, obviously. Well, with all that as a preamble, why don't we go abroad? Don't you think it's time? We go abroad now. Let's talk about what's going on around the world. And what I want to know is what's cooking in Burma, you know, I'm, what's cooking in Myanmar? Come on, uh, tell us what's going on there. Well, Neil, this is really turning into a sad story. You know, many analysts are saying that Myanmar is turning into a failed state. You know, ever since the military coup in February, there's been daily protests throughout the country, albeit the protests are getting slightly smaller as the military has just started shooting demonstrators. Well, yeah, that, that, <laughs> intends to, that intends to discourage. I always say that's a disincentive. I think an economist would call it a yes. disincentive to protest. Yeah. Current, you know, officially 3,000 people have been jailed by the military and 700 have been killed. Probably there's much more. You know, in a very disturbing way, the if your family member is killed, you have to pay the military this extravagant amount of money to get the body back. People are fortifying their neighborhoods. They're defending themselves with rocks, Molotov cocktails, and many are trying to flee the country. But places like China, they're trying to close the border because they're afraid of these refugees bringing in COVID-19. Wow. Uh, the country is also has this massive strike going on. Civil servants, teachers, doctors, uh, truck drivers, tens of thousands of people aren't working. And basically what's happening is the military can't govern because there's nowhere there to work. They can't pay people. The banks won't open. They keep threatening the banks saying you have to open immediately. But people just aren't showing up to work because they're scared to walk down the streets. You know, at the beginning of 2021, the World Bank said that Myanmar's economy would probably grow 6%. Now they're estimating it could fall anywhere from 10 to 20% this year. My God. There is a slight, there's a slight bit of hope there, Neil, that's really not much, I would say. But there is a provisional government. It's called the CRPH. It's made up of these deposed MPs. They're trying to court many of the minorities and just the general population. They're also trying to unite all the rebel groups. And if they were able to unite them, they would have about 75,000 soldiers. But that's still a very small number compared to the military who controls 350,000 soldiers. Yeah, but here's here's the scenario I have. I think the scenario of getting the the you're talking about the minority rebels right uh sort of the non right these are on the the borders i think that's a losing proposition because then if anything that'll be like the one thing that'll get the majority right to fight in, in favor of the regime right the last thing it wants to see is these minorities you know resurgent again particularly the muslims what i think will happen is is that the the Buddhist monks and particularly right the Buddhist uh, just just the core uh, Buddhist monks who are hugely revered by the majority right uh, they certainly don't care for the Muslims they don't care for any of these minority groups 
but they are right. definitely uh, disaffected from this regime. They're the ones who are treating all the injuries in the public and so on. Um, they they have to be in, in favor of getting rid of this uh, military junta in favor of another, I don't know, another junta that, you know, that also wants to persecute all the minorities, right? I mean, they, they don't really care about that part of it. Uh, but I, I think it really depends upon upon them uh, because I think they're the they're the last group with real mor- mor- moral authority. Uh, but wow, uh, that's that's a, that's incredible. Um, just uh, total public strike going on. Well, right. Um, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, I think you have the latest on Russia. What's happening there? Yes, well, that's what everyone's wondering is what is Russia planning? You know, they have started amassing large numbers of troops on the border with Ukraine. Now, if you remember, Neil, since 2014 in Ukraine, there's been this war going on in the east with this separatist movement. Now, Russia has always denied any involvement with this, but it's widely accepted. They are heavily helping these separatists. And, you know, recent days with all this military increase, you know, a few people have wondered, is Russia trying to invade Ukraine? Most people think that won't happen. There is some belief they might try to move into this territory the separatists hold and annex it for Russia. But, you know, a lot of people say this is probably a test to Biden. You know, they're upping the ante and see, will he do anything? You know, he's made vague comments that, you know, if Russia does anything, there'll be consequences. But... It's still, you know, it's similar to what's going on with Taiwan, with China. You know, China keeps flying these planes over Taiwan. They're not officially attacking, but they're trying to see what is the West's response going to be by this growing escalation. Yeah, they've been they've been trading sanctions. I mean, Biden's put more sanctions on the Russians, you know, for interfering with the election um, and and also warning him about the Ukraine. And I think France and Germany kind of supported that. But there are no bright red lines, right? And that's the problem with right. both both the Ukraine and Taiwan. These are no real treaties. These are kind of had deniability. And I think the way for Russia and China to encroach, um, particularly since the West has is not truly committed, is to also just occupy the gray zone, right? Uh, little green men and just do all kinds of stuff where you can always deny it and just go further and further and further. Uh, I'm I'm really uh, intrigued by the imaginativeness of China now using all those tiny little fishing boats. You know, they got huge fleets of these little boats that go out to now to all these islands and shoals and they can just have, you know, a huge number of these fishing boats start, you know, just cruising in on Taiwan and I don't know, starting, you know, to having picnics on the beach in Taiwan. We don't know what they're doing there. You know, we can't control our own fishermen. (laughs) Well, yeah, apparently if some of them have rifles, we didn't know that. But but it's a little bit the same thing as, as you remember how Putin orchestrated, you know, going into Crimea originally, as well as, you know, helping some of those, uh, some of those separatists in in, uh, the eastern uh, kind of industrial parts of, of Ukraine. Uh, this is not going to be declared war. This is going to be how much can you push Biden? Um, and uh, well, speaking of pushing, we've also got 
the probably most potent opponent of uh, of Putin, uh, who's wasting away in a prison now. Is that correct? Yes, Navalny is in trouble. He has been on a hunger strike, Neil, for 20 days. And doctors are saying he could die at any moment. They say he's very close to probably dying of car- cardiac arrest. He's been on this hunger strike because he says the prison has refused to give him any treatment for excruciating back and leg pain that he believes are side effects from his initial poisoning a year or so ago. They have transferred him to a prison infirmary, and he's going undergoing, quote, uh, vitamin treatment. So people are saying basically Putin's doing anything possible to try to keep Navalny alive. You know, Biden has said there will be dire consequences if he dies. And, you know, if he did, there would probably be mass protests throughout the country. Yeah, but Putin probably sees it both ways. You know, um, if he does die, he probably doesn't want him to die. I agree. But if he does die, it's like, you know, who's toughest? I mean, honestly, right? I mean, Navalny thought he was all hot stuff, you know, with all those videos and everything. But who who is actually in power? And if I start moving into Ukraine, well, isn't the ordinary Russian kind of, you know, champion my reclaiming territory from the motherland. I mean, just think about it. I, I, I don't like to be cynical here. Maybe I am. Uh, but I just think that um, the problem with Russia, of course, it doesn't have any of those institutions of liberal democracy. There's so few ways in which most people have ever developed habits of participation, right? So they'll just right. be onlookers. They'll see what's on TV and they'll move on. Um, I do. I do believe you're right. I think the world is testing Biden uh, and this. Remember our theme, our theme for this podcast, <laughs> the testing of Joe Biden. And I think it's starting. I think. Uh, and by the way, and I, maybe I should move on and talk about it. This is coming in the wake of Biden's announcement that the U.S. will pull out of Afghanistan, finally for good by 9-11 of this year. Um, nice round number, I guess considering that's kind of what caused us originally to go into Afghanistan. And I think it's a good turning point for America in a way. Both parties have now disavowed the forever war. And it's not really a signal of isolationism or withdrawal from world engagement. I'm I'm absolutely positive that Biden and uh, Anthony Blinken and, you know, all of his top national security people don't see it that way. Unfortunately, And given the fact that Biden is a Democrat, I hate to say it, but these are sort of, you know, associations people have with a party. It may be perceived that way. Right. Uh, Timing is everything for a president. And I think Biden would have been better served to actually stand up to something. Right. First. Right. Show that he can make someone back down. Then announce. Right. That he's going to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, everything is timing. You know, I'm reminded that, you know, the, all the famous instances of timing. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln, you know, had the Emancipation Proclamation all written, all in hand. But he was waiting for a victory on the battlefield, right, before giving it. And he waited. He finally got Antietam. Now, Antietam uh, came very slowly because in uh, 1862, it looked like Robert E. Lee <laughs> pretty much just kept beating any Union army he came up against, right? But they finally defeated uh, Lee at Antietam, forced him to retreat back across the Potomac. And it was at that point 
that Lincoln could then have. But you see, Lincoln perceived that if he did the Emancipation Proclamation before a victory, it would have been perceived as weakness, right? And he was very savvy. I don't think anyone has had better political instincts than Abraham Lincoln. Just extraordinary how he managed events and how he consistently constantly afraid he was going to lose the next election. He was afraid that he would, you know, lose the, the his second term. He was constantly in fear of losing control of Congress, but he always won. And partly it was due to a magnificent sense of timing. And I think Biden may be may be overlooking that in this instance. Well, let's let's move on and talk. I think you had one other very interesting piece, and this again concerns Biden in a way. Uh, this is right. Israel and Iran. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, Israel is increasingly using its intelligence agency to attack Iran. You know, in the last few months or so, they have most likely been behind the assassination of Iran's chief nuclear scientist and probably were behind these two mysterious explosions that occurred at key nuclear facilities. And what this has really done in Iran is create a sense of paranoia that has significantly slowed down their nuclear capabilities because they know there are moles somewhere in their nuclear program and they have to do these extensive background checks on their workers now and there's paranoia among the public you know recently a general died of a heart attack but there's all these rumors that it was another assassination and it's becoming a major embarrassment for the government you know is the israelis are obviously working with some people in iran who are going against the government you know in the past they've blamed the mek which is this group of pro-democracy Iranians that Iran calls a terrorist organization. And, you know, the government often says that they know who the perpetrators were, but they fled the country. And some people even question if they know who's doing this. They're trying to just act like they're in the know. But where this really becomes important is this nuclear agreement with the U.S. You know, Iran really wants to respond to Israel, but they're worried that if they have too strong of a response, the U.S. is going to back out of any deal. Right. And Israel obviously does not want uh, any detente between the U.S. and Iran. And they may, I think the the big fear in the United States is that Netanyahu, and it's a great distraction for Netanyahu, right? (laughs) He himself is in battle. (laughs) And he may very well want a huge incident or, or some kind of showdown, some deliberate provocation that may force Iran to respond in a way which will almost force Biden to put off, you know, going back to the, um, you know, going back to the to the arms agreement, you know, that was originally negotiated by Obama, right? So, mm-hmm. so we, you know, they they're just going to be a spoiler in all this. Again, Joe Biden being put to the test, right now. Biden, look, he has it in his mind, all of his flowcharts. You know what he's thinking, right? Yeah, and I, I get I get Iran back, so you know, Iran doesn't cause a problem. I get out of Afghanistan, I get to pivot toward Asia, right? He's got it all flow charted out. But hmm, you know, <laughs> it's not necessarily working according to a plan. You've gotta be responsive to events. Uh we'll we'll see. Uh we'll see how that happens. Well, you know, time is short, so we need to move on to our uh, first newswire. This is the surge at the border. Uh, we've been very interested in that, obviously, along with the 
with uh, fertility and mortality. Uh, uh, migration is one of our big interests here at Demography Unplugged. The number of working-age Mexicans apprehended at the border has more than doubled in recent months. And, of course, this coincides with a surge in unaccompanied children. I think that's been in the news a lot, and, and family migrants. And this presents a major quandary for the Biden administration. Since the beginning of 2020, the number of illegal border crossings has skyrocketed. In March, authorities apprehended 172,000 migrants, 172,000 in one month, uh, all over you know Texas, uh, Arizona, New Mexico. That's a 66% year-over-year increase. This marks the largest number of border arrests in a single month since March of 2001, right? That's 20 years ago. And by the way, that's when there was a lot more <laughs> migration going on, right? Again, as we see in the headlines, a large portion of these migrants are children, many of them from Central America's uh, northern triangle of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, a troubled bunch of countries. Last month, officials took 18,890 unaccompanied minors into custody and as you can imagine, many families send their kids across the border because U.S. law makes it hard for them to deport children, uh, I mean, much harder, obviously, than to, to deport adults. This rise in unaccompanied minors started in the Obama years. This is nothing new, and it's just sort of you know wave after wave ever since. But while kids and families are getting most of the news coverage, a new trend has emerged uh, since the pandemic. More border crossings by single Mexican adults. Uh, last month, authorities reported uh, some, you know, nearly fifty-eight thousand encounters with this, you know, young adult demographic. Uh, that's a nearly a hundred percent year-over-year increase. So, what's going on, Christian? And and here we really have to back up and take a longer-term perspective. The U.S. Ex experienced a substantial positive net immigration of, of illegals from Mexico pretty much every year during the 1990s and through the early 2000s. Then, during and after the great financial crisis, the net inflow stopped. And it remains stopped. <laughs> Ever since 2007, in fact, the U.S. has been experiencing a net negative immigration of illegals. That is, more are flowing out than flowing in. Uh, we've covered this trend often over the years. Uh, you know, I think it goes back like six years ago, seven years ago, we ran our first piece on it. Uh, the Pew Research Institute use, uses residuals from census data to plot the estimated total undocumented population in the U.S. by country of origin. And um, as always, you know, I always like to say, Christian, isn't this the right place to say it, that if you subscribed, you know, you'd see all these beautiful pictures, right? You'd see all the graphs, you'd see all the trends in living color. Uh, but here we just have to describe some of them. They're, they're quite dramatic, actually. But you, you can note that not only is, is total undocumented immigrants uh, declining, but the steepest decline is among Mexicans, right? And by the way, this, this helped explain why Asian foreign-born population is now rising, even while the Mexican foreign-born population is now declining. The biggest increase now is coming from Asia in, uh, in uh, uh, illegals. And these are basically not border crossings. These are basically people who just outlast their visas and disappear. Why this reversal in Mexican immigration, though, is, is, is happening 
Uh, and, well, first of all, two questions, really. Why originally this reversal at the time of the GFC? I've, again, written about this many times. Uh, the long-term cause, in my opinion, is the rapid drop in Mexican fertility rates back in the early 1980s. This drop suddenly shrank the size of cohorts reaching their 20s by the mid-2000s. So just timing, coincidentally, with the GFC, right? And people in their mid-20s, by the way, is about the modal age for immigrants looking for employment. So the answer is Mexican families were under less pressure uh, to find jobs for their kids. It's that simple. And like millennials here at home, they're much more protective of their kids. So just a lot fewer younger people were coming to America in search of work for just demographic push reasons. There were also shorter-term drivers, uh, namely economic. In the decade after the GFC, the Mexican economy performed fairly well. It was expanding as faster, faster in the U.S. economy. Uh, you probably remember, Christian, for several years after 2008, U.S. openings for unskilled labor, for example, in the construction industry practically disappeared. The poverty rate for U.S. Hispanics soared Differential job demand persuaded many Americans living in the U.S. to return home. That's where you got that net negative, right, going back. And what's more, President Barack Obama turned out to be a resolute enforcer of immigration laws. Uh, Just to remind you all that no U.S. president has deported as many border crossers during his term of office as Barack Obama. So while undocumented Mexicans could return home without much problem. They experienced a lot more difficulty getting back north again. During the Trump presidency, as U.S. unemployment rates dropped and the U.S. labor markets tightened, America began to reacquire its economic allure so that by the spring of 2019, border arrests were rising again, right? They were reaching their highest monthly totals since before the GFC. Then came the pandemic, which enabled Trump to take extraordinary measures including an executive order expelling border crossers without due process. This is the famous Title 42, right? This uh, was an executive order granted under the aegis of a public health emergency law, which I guess uh, Trump White House found. I think it dates from the 1940s. This effectively kept the borders closed uh, during most of the last 10 months of the Trump presidency. More recently, in February, and especially March, the number of border crossers has soared. And once again, the explanations are not hard to find. On the economic front, the U.S. economy is rapidly accelerating, create hundreds of thousands of new service jobs each month. What did you say about housing starts, Christian? (laughs) What did we say about housing starts, right? I mean, again, these are huge job creators for a lot of uh, Central Americans, right, and Mexicans. We've been putting stimulus cash into the hands of U.S. relatives of many newcomers. Again, many of these people, you know, have people they know up here. That's kind of where they go. Meanwhile, the Mexican economy, even harder hit than the U.S. by COVID-19, is taking much longer to pick up speed. And just to to compare here, while U.S. GDP fell by 3.5% year over year in 2020, Mexican GDP fell by 8.5%. That's the sharpest contraction since 1932 in Mexico. And this is kind of a puzzle to a lot of us, right? Because despite uh, despite his uh, populist reputation, AMLO, that's, you know, Andres Manuel López Obrador, 
the great populist uh, now in the presidency of Mexico perversely refuses to approve much fiscal stimulus. What's up with that? So the economic differential now tilts steeply in the U.S. direction. And meanwhile, of course, I haven't mentioned maybe the third driver, right? A new president and party in the White House changes America's brand in the eyes of most immigrants from not welcome to welcome, (laughs) right? So thousands of families, single adults, unaccompanied children who have put off coming uh, while Trump was in office are now giving it a shot, right? And and I just have to add here, it's it's not that Biden or any other Democratic contender for the for the presidency ever supported open borders. You, know, you would have to say, nor nor could a president attempt such a policy without getting Congress to enact new laws. But it is probably fair to say that after years of invective hurled by progressives at every effort made by Trump to enforce the laws. Many people, both at home and abroad, expected any Democratic president to ease enforcement in any way possible. Even in the absence of any net new inflows induced by America's hotter economy, again, this is my opinion, the pandemic plus Trump's tough reputation probably put the normal back and forth border traffic on hold for most of the year, Many stuck on the Mexican side are eager to rejoin family and friends on the U.S. side. So that's what's creating this rush right now. Biden finds himself in a very difficult position. This is kind of one of those on the one hand and on the other stories, right? On the one hand, Mm -hmm. media stories about a cross-border invasion into the Southwest threaten to make his administration appear, how shall I say it, incompetent, hypocritical? Here is the new Democrat, right? Barely in office. And already he is stumbling in his efforts to control the U.S. border. After his party had complained so loudly and so long about how Republicans had been trying to do it, right? Namely Trump. Politically, this is not a good look for Joe. And many Republicans would be happy to use this issue to try to take back Congress in 2022, right? This is a perfect you know, off-year election issue. On the other hand, the new president is being savaged. Meanwhile, he's being savaged by progressives precisely for trying his best to stop the inflow, right? So this is where he's in the worst of all worlds, right? You've got progressive complaining of his failure to show basic humanity to, humanity to new arrivals. Other charges, he is setting up a harsh constitution-free zone at the border, Uh, There are dozens of House Democrats who want Biden to repeal Title 42, and they're challenging the White House to explain why it is still employing a Trump-signed directive that every Democrat found so hateful just a few months ago. And that is kind of embarrassing, right? Here Biden is, depending on controlling this influx, right, by using this thing that that Trump created that that every Democrat was, was attacking. So he's in a tough position on this. It, it's it's awkward. It may soon get more awkward. Uh, the White House is currently planning to nominate Chris Magnus to head Customs and Border Pro- uh, Protection within the DHS. Chris Magnus is a progressive Arizona police chief. Securing the nomination would please his party's progressive wing, but would also require a hard fight and a close vote in the Senate. And even if the nomination goes through, 
it risks demoralizing the embattled U.S. Border Patrol, right? I mean, they're struggling to kind of stay on top of this. And if they get a guy who's head of the Border Patrol basically saying, you know, <laughs> I don't, I think they're trying too hard, you can imagine what that does. So the, the agency's mass, this is basically when you look at DHS, Department of Homeland Security, the Border Patrol is the agency's massive uniformed enforcement arm. I'd say nearly half of them are Hispanics themselves. And there are, a lot of them are uniform. They're right, you know, down living in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Look, this will not help Biden no matter how this plays out. I can only think of one group that it will help, and that is Senator Mitch McConnell and company. <laughs> so at a time when the economy and markets are, have been doing so well, you know, everything seems to be flashing green. Nothing would please the Republicans more than a months-long debate covered by every news outlet over the president's success or lack of success at the border. So, you know, that's kind of where we are. You know, we were going to cover education now ahead of race in determining life expectancy. I hate to do this, Christian. I hate to do this. You tell me if I'm wrong to do this, but I, we're, at, we're, at, we're in an hour now. And um, I think we should I think we should just do this next time. I want to give this the time it deserves. We'll keep people hanging for next week. Yeah, we'll keep people hanging. Um, it's a it's it's a great piece. And it's actually one. Of, I'll just give people a little teaser on it. I have long been examining this elusive link between educational attainment and life expectancy. And just to to give you a little you know teaser up front. If you study uh, the association of life expectancy with all kinds of stuff, it turns out that, uh, you know, in all these multi-regression analyses, it turns out that even after you control for practically every other variable you can think of that might be the actual causal driver, for instance, maybe people have more education, maybe they, they're, they're more likely to have professional jobs, they have higher income, they have greater self-esteem, they have... Control for all those things. And still, higher educational attainment has a large and significant association with longer lifespan. I strongly suspect, and I will be talking about that next time, that there may be something in educational attainment that is actually a confounding variable, unobserved variable. It may be, it may actually have to do with the kind of people who actually want to pursue higher education rather than the attainment itself, right? So that whole messy issue of causality and the fascinating inversion we now see between race and education is something that we're going to be covering next time along with deaths of despair and everything that um, that Ann Case and and you know uh, Angus Deaton Nobel laureate from Princeton uh, have talked about all these years so that promises to be a great one so look we will do that I should just add here I think there's a time to add here so long as I'm working on my new book, I'm probably going to be doing podcast every other week rather than every week. I know I've been doing it every week for a long time. We'll see how it goes, uh, at least for the next, I don't know, the next few weeks, I'll probably be doing it every other week. We may go back to a weekly schedule soon. Uh, but for now, as always, I'm going to be thanking you for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. In two weeks, again, we'll be talking to you again. So until then, thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. 
If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at How Generation. That's H-O-W-E Generation. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.